Good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us here today. It's wonderful to have all of your voices singing in praises to God. So we're beginning our new series today, and our new series focuses on the book of Isaiah. As you can see over on the sideboard, we've finished with Psalms, and now we're, we're heading through, um, somewhat chronologically, through the next stage to Isaiah. And then um, next month we'll be starting on the book of Matthew and telling the story of Jesus. And then we'll follow on from the story of Jesus by going to Ephesians and studying um, the church. And then we'll finish with Second uh, Timothy and then Revelation, um, looking at the life of a faithful Christian and looking at God's final victory. So the, this month we're looking at the hope of victory, looking at five chapters in Isaiah to give you a bit of a summary of what Isaiah is all about and what he was looking forward to. So we're going to study chapter 1 today, chapter 9 next week, chapter 31, then 53, then 61 um, over the five Sundays of this month. And we'll be looking at the main core message of Isaiah. So in 1946, there were these shepherd boys. They were teenagers and they were wandering about um, 20 or 30 k's southwest of Jerusalem. Southeast, sorry. Down near the Dead Sea. And uh, it's a very barren land. Um, if you're not familiar, it's in this part of the world. So you can see Europe up the top, Africa down the bottom, and the Middle East over uh, on the eastern side. There's some cities, I mean, countries there to get your reference point. So we're looking at this part of the world. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, 90% of the stories in the Bible occur in this area here. So if you know what this part is about, you'll know where things happen in the Bible. The Bible is not a... It's not set in fantasy land. It's not the Chronicles of Narnia or the Lord of the Rings where you have to learn a new world and these fictitious lands. It's set in the real world. You can go to these places. They're real places. They're real cities. This is real history that we're learning about. So this part of the world is where most of the Bible happens, all centred around the Mediterranean Sea. Um, now, in this part in particular, this part that uh, involves Canaan's land, um, what is now Israel, Palestine, and uh, part of Egypt, that's where even more of the Bible is, is uh, situated and, and based in. So this is what it looks like today. Now, you've got um, the Sea of Galilee still up here, the Dead Sea down here, the Jordan River connecting both of them, and then most of the tribes of Israel were based in this region here. Real place, real cities, real land. Okay, so this is where the um, teenage shepherds were in 1946, and they were looking for their uh, sheep just at the top of the Dead Sea here. And you can see just by the landscape, it's desert everywhere uh, and, and a really barren place. Not a place where you want to grow vegetables, it's a place where you want to have some flocks um, if you want to be a farmer. So they were searching for a sheep, a, a particular sheep that had gone missing. And they were looking around in some of the caves that were there. And one of the boys, he got a, a stone and he threw it into the cave to see how deep the cave was. And instead of hearing it smash against the, the wall of the cave, he heard it smash against some pottery. Uh, and he thought, that's interesting. I didn't know that anyone was around these caves at all. And it turns out that no one was. So in this particular region up here at the top of the Dead Sea, there's the Qumran National Park. And it's become a national park because of that discovery that was made there by those two teenage shepherds. The area looks like this. Um, it's very mountainous. It's very difficult if you lose a goat or a sheep and they climb up these hills and get into the caves here. So you have to be very able-bodied as a shepherd. 
So these boys climbed up into one of these caves and they discovered that there were all these bits of pottery and inside the pottery were scrolls and they found what was the most incredible archaeological discovery of the century and perhaps of all time. They didn't know it of course, um, they just took the scrolls back to their tent and they hung them up and kept them for a couple of months there. Every time they had a visitor, they'd say, hey, check out these scrolls that we found. Uh, you know, they're pretty cool. And then they took them into Jerusalem one day and they tried to sell them to someone and the first person said, these are rubbish, these are worthless, they don't mean anything at all. And so they passed them by. They took them to the next guy and he said, I'll pay you a couple of dollars for them. So they sold it to him and he sold it to someone and they sold it to someone. And then a couple of years later, there was this ad that showed up in the New York Times in about 1948, 49. Uh, and the ad said, um, some scrolls for sale, uh, perfect for the religious library. Uh, you know, if someone wants to add some scrolls to a, to a nice library, uh, and they, they offered them for a particular price. And that's when the historians went, hang on a minute, uh, what, what's this about? And where are these scrolls from? And they investigated. And in this particular cave here, they went back and they searched through all the caves and they found uh, hundreds, thousands of scrolls in um, these very vessels themselves, um, these bits of pottery. So what had happened was there was a community that was living there 2,300 years ago, and this community was a, a group of Jews. They were following the law. They were reading the Old Testament. This was before Jesus had come, and they were copying out the Bible again and again and again. They were copying out their scriptures and keeping them there. Um, and so the, the scrolls that were found there, called the Dead Sea Scrolls, and, and you can look them up online, you can read, if you can read Hebrew, you can read through the, the Dead Sea Scrolls um, and actually find all of the, the research that's still going on. Even though that discovery was made almost 80 years ago now, um, they're still researching and still reading through these scrolls and doing lots more. They're still letting us know what is on all of the scrolls. And what it did was it confirmed that the Bible in the Old Testament is indeed accurate. See, all of the skeptics had been going around and saying, well, you can't trust the Bible because the latest Old Testament manuscripts we have are from the Middle Ages. That's a good 1,700 years after Isaiah wrote. That's a good, uh, it's thousands of years after Moses wrote. And what the Dead Sea Scrolls have confirmed is that even when you go further and further back and when you get these really ancient manuscripts, they're exactly the same as our modern stuff. Very, very few um, changes were made in that 1,300-year um, gap that we have. So there were two Bible books that were found to be more popular with the Dead Sea Scrolls than all of the other Old Testament books. So there were two books that this community living in Qumran, living in the caves there, really focused on. They saw these books as being um, perhaps most relevant to the time that they were living in and most important for them. And those two books are the Psalms and Isaiah, which is why we're studying Psalms and Isaiah. These um, people lived in a time of disappointment. You go back with me to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Let's set the history of the Qumran community. In Genesis chapter 12, God makes a covenant. It means an agreement. It means a contract um, with a guy called Abraham. And he says in verses 1 through 3, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great 
so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, so Abraham's descendants were going to bless the world in some way. And so the rest of the Old Testament deals with those descendants and how they supposedly bless the world. And you read the Old Testament and you go, they didn't bless the world at all. In fact, if anything, they were a curse upon the world. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, he says, all day long the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of the Jews, right? Instead of blessing the world, the Jews, the descendants of Abraham, turned out to blaspheme God's name. And so in um, Exodus chapter 19, if you go to Exodus 19 with me, you see uh, another thing that the Israelites were called to be, the Israelites, the Jews. Uh, Exodus 19 and verse 5 and 6. This is when Abraham's descendants have come out of Egypt and God is instructing them on what kind of people they are to be. So Exodus 19 verses 5 and 6. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. A kingdom with priests or a kingdom of priests? You see, Israel turned out to be a kingdom with priests. But God said, you are meant to be a kingdom of priests. What's a priest? A priest is a representative between one person and God. It's kind of like a middleman in the way that Jesus now is our high priest. He goes in between us and God and makes reconciliation. Israel was meant to be a kingdom of people who drew all of the nations closer to God. They were meant to bless the nations by being the link between God and all of mankind. That's what God had said to Abraham. That's what God said to Moses in Exodus. And that's not what Israel did. They broke the covenant and it turned out that they were a stumbling block to everyone coming to know God. So... There was a community of Jews living in the 3rd century BC, a couple of hundred years before Christ. And they were living at Qumran. They were living in these caves. And they were looking back through the Old Testament. And they were saying, you know, God promised that we would be a blessing to the nations. And we haven't been. God promised that we would be a kingdom of priests. That we would represent him to everyone. And we haven't done it. So when's it going to happen? Because at that time, they were living under, well, they went from the Assyrians to the Babylonians to um, the Persians to the Greeks, and then they went to um, the Seleucids, and then they went to the Ptolemaic dynasty, and then they were under the Romans. They just were under all of these other people. They said, when are we going to be free so that we can represent God? That's the question that they asked, and the answer they found was in Isaiah and Psalms. So if you understand Isaiah and Psalms, you get a good understanding of what the Old Testament is pointing to. And that's why when you get to the New Testament, the two books that are most quoted in the New Testament, Isaiah and Psalms. Because if you want to know what the um, Old Testament is pointing to, those are the main books that are pointing to the hope that the Jews were waiting for. Is everyone following with me? Does everyone get that? All right, that's why we're studying Isaiah. I just had to explain it because if you don't tell people why you're studying Isaiah, people will go, 
I don't want to study Isaiah. <laughs> That's a hard book. That's really difficult. And it is. Isaiah is challenging to read, okay? How many people read poetry for fun? Do we have many poetry readers? Yeah, okay, one. Danny. <laughs> Danny reads poetry. Yeah, so the prophets are largely poets, right? And poetry is hard to read. Poetry written in a different language is harder to read. Poetry written in a different language that was written 2,700 years ago is really hard to read. So we're going to go through verse by verse in these chapters and try and explain what Isaiah is talking about. Don't be intimidated. It is, um, once you kind of crack the surface, there are some real nuggets of truth um, that you can get from it. So Isaiah was a prophet. So a prophet, we think of prophet and we think, oh, like a fortune teller, like he had a crystal ball or something like that. That's not what the word prophet means in the Bible. Prophets talk about the future, but so do the books of poetry and so do the books of history and so do the books of law. So the prophets are not just fortune tellers. The way to think of a, a prophet is to think of them as a, a covenant watchdog. So the prophets were there to keep the nation of Israel accountable to the covenant that they made with God. They were essentially the watchdog community. They came in and they told Israel, you're not holding up your end of the deal. Imagine you make an agreement with me, you know. Um, you come over and I'll feed you um, something delicious. I'll feed you a lamb roast every Sunday and you pay $20 or something. That's uh, fairly expensive, but you know, it's a good lamb roast <laughs> that I offer. So that's the covenant that we make. That's the contract that we make. And so you come over, you enjoy your lamb roast, you leave and you don't give me $20. And you do the same the next week, the next week, the next week. A prophet would be someone who comes in and stands in between you and I and says, hey, look, you're not holding up your end of the bargain. This was the contract. This was the agreement that you made. You need to hold up your fair share of the deal. Okay, so that's what Isaiah is all about. That's what all the prophets are about. They're coming to remind you you're in a contract and you've got to hold up your end of the bargain. Essentially, you had a covenant with God. Your actions show that you're breaking that covenant and therefore, if you don't turn around, the covenant's broken. The covenant's dead. So watch out. So let's go through Isaiah chapter 1. If you can turn with me back to Isaiah chapter 1 and let's look at the work of this prophet as he reminds them that they're not holding up their end of the contract. Isaiah chapter 1 is broken down into these parts. So we have in verses 1 to 9, it's a law court setting and it's a broken contract that's being presented. In verses 10 through 15, Isaiah is saying your empty religious rituals will do nothing to help you. In verses 16 to 20, it's a message of hope and forgiveness. In verses 21 to 26, it goes from being a faithless city to a faithful city. And then finally, we finish up by looking at the losing side and their fortunes. Okay, so let's start with that first part, verses 1 through 9. I'm going to put the verses up on the board, but please open your Bibles. Please follow along, especially if you've got a different translation or if you want to make notes or just so that you get the context. Isaiah 1 and verse 1. This is the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Are you lost yet? You know, this isn't a gripping introduction for us, is it? It's like, ah, oh, more history, more names. I just want to switch off and, and disconnect from this. So let's, let's give you a brief background to what Isaiah is talking about here. You remember King David? 
he had a son called Solomon. After Solomon, the kingdom of Israel split into two. It went into the northern kingdom with a, a king by the name of Jeroboam, and it went into the southern kingdom with a man called Rehoboam. So they split up the land of Canaan. So this is, again, this map, the Dead Sea down here, the Jordan River, the um, uh, Sea of Galilee. So the northern kingdom took the top half, the southern kingdom took the bottom half. And we're following the, the southern kingdom mainly in Isaiah. So uh, Rehoboam had sons and they had sons and they had sons and we get eventually down to the reign of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah. Four kings in a row. And during those four kings, during that kind of dynasty era, that's when Isaiah prophesied. So as early as 767 BC, as late as 687 BC. So that's our setting. Isaiah's just saying, that's who I'm preaching to, that's where I'm at. Isaiah 1 verses 2 and 3. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Isaiah is preaching to Israel at a tough time. Here's what's going on in other parts of the world. In about the year 700, that's when we have the first Olympic Games being held. In the year 700, you have Homer uh, writing the Iliad and the Odyssey, or Homer's students, or, or whatever it might be. Um, you have the city of Rome being founded. But in Israel, here's what's happening. There's a contract that's being violated, and Isaiah is calling people to account for that. He says, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. This is reminiscent of when Moses delivered the, the contract, the covenant, to Israel, and he called heaven and earth as witness against Israel in Deuteronomy 31, verse 28. And he says here, everyone gather round, heavens, earth, come and witness this, come and testify to this fact. Children have I reared and brought up but they have rebelled against me. He says, you know, an ox isn't that smart, but an ox knows who its owner is. And a donkey isn't that smart, but it knows who its parent is. Israel is dumber than an ox, dumber than a donkey. Doesn't know its parents, doesn't know its owner. And he says, ah, I love this. In Hebrew, this is a, an expression. It's like an exclamation mark. It's, you know, when something goes wrong and all you can do is just let out a bit of noise, you just say, ah, you know, frustrating when something goes wrong, wrong at work or when, you know, that person who always makes that same mistake makes the mistake again and you just say, ah, that's what Isaiah is getting at. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. The word laden means like bearing under it. It means it's, it's weighing down on you. I think of, you know, when you go like hiking and you see those people with the um, seven-day hike things, and they've got their big things stacked way up above them. That's the picture that I think of, laden with iniquity, like it's just weighing them down. It's just pushing them down. Offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. It's one of Isaiah's favorite names for God, the Holy One of Israel, um, to contrast the Holy One versus the unholy ones. They are utterly estranged. He says in verse 5 and 6, why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? And then he, he goes on here to describe that sin is causing them, it's almost like sickness, but they can't see it. He says the whole head is sick 
and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, and, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. You imagine someone walking in here today and they've just got cuts all over them, they've got bruises, they're beaten up, they're in agony, but they don't know. They're just ignoring it, pretending like it's not there. And you're trying to take them to the hospital, you're trying to call a doctor, and they're saying, no, I'm fine, I'm all good. That's the picture Isaiah is presenting here. Israel is sick from head to toe, and it has no idea. In verses 7 and 8, Your country lies desolate, your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. You know, Zion has been destroyed. The, the, the countryside around um, the southern kingdom has been annihilated. They've lost towns, they've lost people, they've lost buildings. They're like a, a lodge in a cucumber field. Like, that's how vulnerable they are. You know, that's a great expression. Um, if anyone asks you how you're feeling today, say, I feel like a lodge in a cucumber field. <laughs> it means I feel weak, I feel vulnerable, like all of my defences are down and I'm just exposed here. He says, If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Isaiah is saying, Your whole nation is desolate. Your whole nation has been ruined and you're ignorant to it. You can't even see what's right in front of you. You're sick from head to toe. You've got sores and bruises and cuts and you're pretending like everything is fine. You know, he's like shaking them and saying, why are you so blind to this? I'd ask the same to you and I. Maybe you're in a, a state of, um, of spiritual neglect. Maybe things are going wrong in lots of ways in your life. And Isaiah wants to shake you and say, can't you see what it's doing? Can't you see that selfishness, that sin that you're indulging in, the sin that you won't deal with? Can't you see how it's tearing you up? Do it for your own sake. We know Sodom and Gomorrah, utterly destroyed. And um, they were destroyed because of their sin. And Isaiah says, if it wasn't for God and his help, we would have been like them. And then look at what he goes on to in the next part. In Empty religious ritual won't save for the next six verses. He says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. So he says, you deserve what Sodom and Gomorrah got. It's only God's grace that he hasn't done the same. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams. And the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. He says in verses 12 and 13, When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, you know, that was their religious feast that they were holding. And the calling of convocations, when you call people together to have a feast... I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. He says in verses 14 and 15, Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will, you know, 
uh, the Jews used to pray like this. They would pray like that to God. So they'd spread out their hands. And God says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. I'm going to look the other way. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. God's, you know, plugging up his ears, saying, I'm sick of these prayers. I'm sick of these empty rituals. Your hands are full of blood. Do you think God would ever tell you to not go to church? You realise that's exactly what he's saying to these people. Stop going to church. Except in the olden days it was stop going to the temple. Stop offering your sacrifices. They're not just neutral. They are actually an offence to God. He says, I'm sick of them. I'm sick and tired of you pretending like everything's okay when it's not. I'm sick of you coming along, coming to church and pretending like your life is fine, offering up your prayers, doing your Bible reading, singing with the songs. And in reality, things aren't fine. And God says it'd be better if you did nothing at all than to be a hypocrite and a liar. The only person you're fooling is yourself. And God is ashamed of that kind of worship. Brethren, we, don't, we can't be perfect, but we can't be hypocrites either. We can't be living a life where we're coming along and pretending like things are fine here when it is sickening and tiring to God, when God is offended by our service because our church going is so separated and against our life. God says, you put those two things together, that's fine, that's great. But you try and keep on going with the religious stuff when your life is lived in open, rebellious, unrepented sin, don't even bother showing up. They're pretty strong words from God, isn't it? Don't go to church. Don't go to church if you're going to live like a hypocrite. Better if you didn't do anything at all. He says in verses 16 to 20, this is where he changes it. And he says, I'm not telling you just stop going to church full stop. I'm saying fix things up and then come and, and worship again. In verses 16 and 17, he says, Wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Wash yourself. You're like dirty. You're coming before God. You're coming to church. You're coming to the temple. And you're, you're dirty with sin. You know, it's no wonder that, that Jesus was quoting from Isaiah when he said, you know, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Isaiah uh, 29 and verse 13. He says, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Not complicated, is it? Just start doing the right thing. You know what the right thing is to do. You know what it means to be just. You know what it means to correct people who are oppressed. You know what it means to bring justice to people who are vulnerable. Just start doing that. And he says in verses 18, and nine, uh, 18 through 20, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This isn't just a message of doom and gloom. This is a message of hope. You know those commercials that you see on the TV when you're watching midday TV and there's really long commercials for cleaning products uh, and they have like a, 
a carpet cleaning product. They've got Vanish um, gold standard clean, carpet cleaner. I'm not paid by Vanish, but if anyone's from Vanish, I'd be willing to be paid by Vanish. Uh, you, you know what they do in those ads. They get the oil and they spill it on the carpet. They get the ink, they spill it on the carpet. They get the rubber and, and put it into the carpet and grease and everything that they can find. They put the most disgusting things on the carpet. You're never getting that out. And then in comes Vanish, gold standard carpet cleaner. And they spray it on and you leave it for 20 minutes and it just vacuums right off. And all of it comes off and it's just like it was new. That's what God's saying here. Though your sins are like scarlet they shall be as white as snow though they are red like crimson they shall become like wool you look at that carpet and you think there's no way of getting that stain out it's so ingrained it's so embedded and god says i'm going to change it from crimson from scarlet to snow from crimson to wool if you are willing and obedient god will remove all of that sin. And then he has these word plays here. You shall eat of the good of the land or the sword will eat you. <laughs> so choose. Are you going to eat the good of the land or are you going to let the sword eat you? Isaiah 1 verses 21 to 26. Uh, he talks here about the faithless city of Jerusalem and how it will one day become a faithful city. He says in verses 21 to 23, how the faithful city has become a harlot or a prostitute. Um, we miss this here, but in the, um, in the original Hebrew, Isaiah is actually doing some wordplay here. So in the original Hebrew, it sounds like, That's what that verse sounds like, right? It's rhyming, it's poetic, it's beautiful. It's actually rap. Um, so rap wasn't invented in the 70s in New York. It was invented in the Iron Age in uh, the Judean foothills uh, but Isaiah is a cool guy right he's rapping to the people he's saying right he's drilling this into them and teaching them you know you're going to remember this you're going to remember this little rhyme you're going to carry it around with you how the faithful city has become a harlot a prostitute by the way that one of those words is lesanya uh, Hannah was asking if that's related to lasagna, uh, and it's not. Uh, they're different words. One's Italian, one is Hebrew. So uh, now that you've got lasagna in your head, though, I baked a lasagna for luncheon today. So if you're hungry for lasagna, you can stick around for that afterwards. Um, so this whole um, wordplay here, the point is, what is the, the opposite of being faithful? The opposite of being faithful is prostitution and harlotry, isn't it? Instead of being faithful to someone, you are selling yourself out to the highest bidder. And that's the, the illustration. It's not a, an easy one. It's not PG rated. Um, this is a, a pretty heavy illustration here. And he says, your city is essentially a prostitute. Imagine if someone came to Toowoomba and said, Toowoomba, yeah, it's lovely, good gardens. It's a bit like a prostitute though. You know, you'd be offended by that. That's, that's our city that you're talking about. That's beautiful Toowoomba. Isaiah is saying here, this city, which was meant to be faithful to a contract, has become the epitome of unfaithfulness. You have sold yourself out to everyone and everything. He says, 
Righteousness lodged in her, that was before, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's cause does not come to them. This is what Jerusalem looks like. It's not a nice place to live at all. Therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and I will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. Now I'm sure most of us have done a blacksmith apprenticeship in the past so you'll know what this illustration is about. No. So what, what he's talking about here is he's saying in any metalwork, if you want to refine silver, what do you have to do? Chuck it in the flame. Get all of the impurities away. And Isaiah says the exact same thing is happening here. God is going to put the fire on you to refine you, purify you, so that he can work with your descendants. He says, And I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counsellors as at the beginning. Afterward you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Let's go to our final part. The losing side and their fortunes. He concludes with this. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired and you shall blush for the gardens that you've chosen. And all of our gardeners say, what's wrong with gardens? What's wrong with oaks? Well, they were worshipping underneath the oaks and in the gardens. They were worshipping their false gods. So they will be ashamed of those gardens, of those trees that they were serving the other gods under. And he says, for you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. We all know what that means. And the strong shall become like tinder and his work a spark. So the strong man... The big, strong, mighty man in Jerusalem is going to become like a bit of uh, paper, a bit of um, something just tiny and flammable, something that's tender and is good for, for starting a fire. And his work is going to be a spark. And both of them shall burn together and none, with none to quench them. So this is a warning to everyone. It's to young and to old. It's for men and for women. It's for married and unmarried, for every single person in this room. The, the, the problem is that we think that we can control our desires and we can't. Sin is not just a thing you do, it's something that controls you. And they were ignorant of it. And they didn't even see it in their own lives, even when they were beaten up and bruised all over, even when all the cities were destroyed. They didn't even see what the problem was. And Isaiah is saying, if you give in to sin, it will not be a part of your life. It will consume you. As God says to Cain, you must rule over it. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over sin. If you let sin in the door, it will not just take part of your life, it will enslave you. And it will blind you to the damage that it's doing. So the question is, are you going to live as a slave of sin or are you going to die to sin and live in freedom? That's the question Isaiah is asking them. And he gives them that option. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. You get to choose what role sin is going to play in your life. So what does all this have to do with victory? So Isaiah calls out the Israelites and says they were breaking the covenant. 
as a result of which God would withdraw his blessings and protection from the people. But God promised that through Isaiah, one day the people would have their sins washed away. That's God's victory. Right? That's what he was looking for. Isaiah anticipated the victory of God. The Qumran community, they wrote out Isaiah again and again, waiting for that victory of God, waiting for that day when God would wipe away their sins, when sin wouldn't control them and enslave them anymore, but when they would rule over it through dying to sin, through rising again and living for God. If you need to act on that this morning, come and talk to one of us. Come and make sure you die to sin and don't let sin enslave you anymore. Let's uh, sing our final song.